um, if you start tap dancing, I, I would like a heads up so I can record it. <laughs> okay, um, you'll definitely get a heads up. <laughs> just start seeing it. Yeah. This is a test and you're doing well, Kevin. Great. Okay, are we ready? Uh, I'm ready. Okay. Whenever you're ready. You come in when I say, tell us. If you come I'm, in before, then I'll punch you in the face. Okay? Uh, I'm not going to come in until you tell me to come in. Great. So. Kevin, don't come in yet. Oh, hi. You're listening to Service from Hell, a podcast featuring people that are currently in customer service positions or the lucky few that got out and all of the good, bad, and infinitely irritating things that go along with that work. I'm actor and writer Kate Gaffney, and I'm uniquely qualified to discuss this as I used to work at a very busy and very popular comedy club in Los Angeles, and at least one of you listening right now has probably grabbed me and told me you were ready to order when I was running around like a crazy person. So let's eat. I'd like to welcome our guest, producer, writer, narrative comedian, six-time Moth Story Slam winner, and New York Grand Slam champion, Kevin McGeehan. Kevin originally hails from Jacksonville, Florida. After graduating with a degree in theater from University of Florida, Kevin moved to Chicago and was hired by Second City to be a member of the National Touring Company, where he performed countless shows. His true stories have been published in Men's Health Magazine, featured on the podcast Risk, and his episode of Soul Pancakes That Moment went viral on Facebook with over 9 million views. He can be heard on NPR, seen on the Moth YouTube channel, or out and about teaching storytelling regularly because he's actually that good at it. I better know Kevin from running lights for his amazing one-man show about the pre-funeral party that he threw for his dying mother, and then him becoming an improv coach of mine that kept me sane as I worked at the Insane Comedy Club job that you all have heard about over and over. That said, Kevin, what got you into storytelling? Can you explain to us how you egotted the Moth? Tell us all the things, Kevin. All right. <laughs> since you narrowed it down to all the things, uh, how did I get into storytelling? Well, uh, the aforementioned thing that you said, where it was the story of the pre-funeral party that I threw for my mother, it was, that was the thing that kind of sparked me into learning how to tell stories because for the first time in my life, I was actually compelled by something that happened that I felt I need to tell this story, but I don't know how to tell it where it's not just this masturbatory self-serving hey look what happened to me <laughs> so i had to figure out how to tell stories to strangers so they would understand so they could relate to it and it's not just something that's exclusive to me so when, do you think a theater background helped you with storytelling it didn't hurt it <laughs> yeah it definitely well i mean it added a little bit just the performative nature of it and just the being comfortable speaking in front of people and able to one of the things second city teaches you the more you're there because i've I worked for them for 23 years. Wow. Yeah. And one of the things that I really got up from it was a training of how to get into flow mm. pretty quickly. And that helped me just with storytelling, just to allow me to speak unencumbered. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So I want to get into more of the specifics of storytelling, but so why storytelling and not theater? Because I originally had actor in your bio and you said, eh, not actor. So what shifted that for you? When I moved to Los Angeles and I saw what is necessary to become an actor in Los Angeles, <laughs> driving all around the city, doing things that are just weird and soul crushing, <laughs> I made a conscious decision that, okay, I don't think that's the route I want to take. <laughs> Why? Why on earth, Kevin? Why wouldn't you? Oh, I want? thought I just explained it. Oh, 
Oh, my gosh. Was I not clear? That's on me. That is on me. <laughs> Storytelling be damned. Okay. Now, you egotted the moth, and I don't think people... First of all, people might not know what egot means, and then also, like, I was being an asshole, because, like, you just win all the things. So, like, what does that mean, and how does one do that? Uh, it is a self-proclaimed title that I, when I realized <laughs> that... Uh, for the moth which is a storytelling show out of new york that's an npr show that focuses on true stories told by people can you actually i'm so sorry we're gonna even go further back how does one get into the moth what does that look like like what is what the what well the first level of it is open for anyone they have open mic storytelling competitions in i'm gonna make this number up but it's pretty close like 25 different cities wow and uh it's just they will set up a theme for that show and then people can come in put their name in and tell a story from it and then of those 10 people that get chosen, one person will emerge a winner that is chosen by three judges that are chosen randomly in the audience. And then from there, they are now a story slam winner. From there, you go to the next level, which is the grand slam. And if you win that from these other nine storytellers that have also won that, if you win that, you are now the grand slam champion. And I've done both of those things. And the other two would be the story that you tell is heard by certain listeners that are hired by the moth and then they pass that story up to the next level. Then it gets passed up to the next level. So when my story was chosen for the book, uh, the 45 stories were chosen to be in this anthology for their 20th anniversary. And they said the way they described it to me is that the reason my story was found, they said, picture that last scene in Raiders of the Lost Ark with that <laughs> warehouse with all those crates in it. I said, that's our catalog of stories and we found your story in that warehouse. So just a happenstance. Happenstance. Wow. It got passed up enough that it made it to that. So uh, they hired me to start touring the country to start telling that story. Then from there, it got put on the radio in the moth story hour. And then it ended up in the book. So I think people, and you may not know the answer to this. I'm putting you on the spot with this. I think people think that's how Mike Birbiglia got into everything because he was on This American Life telling a truncated version of a car accident story from out here. Was he a moth performer? Yes. He was. The first time he ever told Sleepwalk with me was for a moth story slam. I or not a story slam, but it was, um, yeah, he told it as a part of a curated night for the moth. Okay, that wasn't untrue. I did not, not untrue know that. at all. That is okay. the only reason. Okay. How, why'd you get into storytelling? Sure, that story that I wanted to tell. However, it was because I traced Mike Birbiglia's ascension path, and that was the thing I saw in there is that he started telling his story in The Moth. And then when I heard Sleepwalk With Me, his one-man show where he talks about his sleepwalking disorder, that taught me for the first time that, oh my gosh, you can tell a full narrative with a beginning, middle, and end about a heavy subject, and it can be incredibly funny and fall under the category of comedy show. And that to me was the eye-opening, oh my gosh, that's exactly what like works for me in my brain. Because I'm not a stand-up. I've never felt I'm not I don't feel I'm good at jokes per se. But you're I feel not like, funny. So that's yeah, that's right. Wow. That came up now. <laughs> there were so many opportunities to tell me this, but just to take me out at the knees right now. Keeping you on your toes, Kevin. Wow. But because he did that, then that okay. became the the goal of mine was to tell the story that I wanted to tell that was so big and just eating at me to tell it. And that's what I did as I started following his path. I promise, audience, we did not talk about this ahead of time. I did not know that was truly your path. That's amazing. Yeah. that's. And, uh, and I had this uh, goal of mine that I wanted to tell Mike Birbiglia a, this whole story 
of me doing this, but I never, I kept coming close to being able to do it. And on the day that uh, the moth flew me out to Austin, Texas to perform the story in their main stage series, to be in front of the biggest audience I'd ever been in front of doing the biggest thing that I'd ever done on my own. Who do I see at the airport at seven o'clock in the morning going to their gate with Mike Birbiglia? Fuck off. I'm not going to because <laughs> it's true. And I did not say anything to Why? him because it's seven in the morning oh. and I want this moment to be something real and not just, hey man, could I? <laughs> so I saved it. But there were also other times where I have friends who are friends of his that tried to set me up to get this story in front of him. But it, all it culminates in... He did a show on Broadway called The New One, which was his story of becoming a father, not wanting to become a father, and then eventually at the end, becoming a father. It's a beautiful, well-told story, and it's quite an amazing thing to put that on Broadway just by himself telling this story. It was an amazing uh, feat from my point of view. Bless him. I went to New York and saw it while it was there. And as you can do after every Broadway show, you can wait by the door to talk to people. And on the night that I was there, no one waited. Shut the fuck up, Kevin. This is I'm not, not a going true to. Story. I'm this not going not to. True. Not going to stop. What? So I wait there. He comes out, and I say hi to him. He's very nice, and I say, "Can I tell you a story?" And he said, "Yes." And I told him that I saw his. The first time I saw him was at uh, This American Life did a simulcast in movie theaters. I saw that same one. That I saw it in a movie theater on my birthday was when it came out and I saw that and had the, who is this guy? And then from there, that just led me on the path to eventually uh, do all the things I had done until eventually led me to that backstage door of his Broadway theater. And I said, what you taught me and what you inspired me with is that that you can do something, like I just said earlier, you can do something heavy with some oomph to it, but you can make it an incredibly funny comedy show. And I worded it a lot more eloquently in the moment because I was ready for this. And he looked at me and he said, legitimately, thank you for telling me that. And it was such a wonderful, like full circle moment. Uh, But I also got to tell him to close up this loop. I said, I had an opportunity to tell you this before, but it was when I was in LAX at seven in the morning about to go to Austin, Texas to do the biggest thing I'd ever done for the moth. And I saw you and I wanted to tell you but I thought it was the best idea not to. And he goes, that was the best choice you could have made. <laughs> Double confirmation. I love it so much. I really didn't know he was that much of an influence on you. Huge. I mean, it's the only oh. reason I do what I do. Wow. Because I was shown that you can do it and it's an actual thing. Wow. Yeah. So what is, when you say egotting, like, so that means, okay, so you did uh, the local competition. Local so, competition. Yeah. Uh, so I've won, a, I've won Story Slams, Grand Slam, did the main stage series, then put on the radio and the podcast, and then published in the book. So what I guess, because um, I've done it before, and it's a deeply intimidating, so overwhelming experience. Did you practice and know what the subject matter was going to be? Because I thought every story slam or every local competition, you find out the the subject of the story that you're about to tell immediately, like right then. No. Okay. No, so, no, no, no. It's you can okay. find out months in advance what they're going to be. Oh, so that's why I shit the bed. Okay, great. So you, you were prepared. Yeah, you can know you can be I'm prepared every time I go up. Well, most of the time I go up. I'm really prepared. Okay. Like I'm ready. Like I've got my beats out and I've I know the story I'm telling. It's not okay. just so what do you guys want to hear me talk about? It's it's really it's <laughs> how much time do you get? I forget. 
uh, five minutes, you get a, a warning bell, and then six minutes after that, they start taking off points. Oh, shit. Mm-hmm. I forgot about that, too. Yep. Is that true for the even the, the big shows? Like, Or do you get more and more time as you graduate? You get more and more time. More and more time, and they start to pay you. Oh, the shit. first two levels, you don't get paid, but then once they hire you, then you start getting paid. Okay. And if you are lucky enough to be one of the ones where, like there was a guy who had a, an amazing story, and they loved it being the opener for a lot of their shows, so he got to travel pretty much the entirety of the U.S. and parts of Europe just telling this story, but the thing is that happens is once it goes on the radio, it's burned. And oh, they, shit. You can no longer do it on the road. Oh, wow. So they kept it, he kept the ball in the air for him just to keep doing it everywhere because they love that story, but then eventually it did get on the radio, and then that amazing journey in his life was then complete. <laughs> okay, so do you still tour with them? Oh, no, no. I'm on the radio, and then that completes that part of the journey. Damn. Do you want to do it again? Uh, sure, but at the same time, like the odds of it are very slim. Oh, of even getting like because winning is even because it's also the ones they do for the the big main stage ones. Yeah, they are stories. Yeah, they are that are big. Yeah, and like there's only a few big stories you have in your life that. That's true. Unless yeah. you're making them up, and it's hard to like. There was one. Uh, this woman. Had a, was a dentist in Colombia, and one night the hospital she was working at got taken over by rebels, and she was taken to this basement by gunpoint, and there was this boy on a table with this huge abscess on his cheek, and she was forced at gunpoint to fix this boy because he was the son of the leader of the rebels, and they said, if you do not fix him, you're okay, dead. You. Oh, how so does like, one compete with that story? Not well. Like that's <laughs> like I have a lot. Like uh, I had a lot of acne in high school, so I could tell you like that. Like it's really so. Like those kind of things. Like they're highly curated and they're high end, like amazing life events. Yeah. So yeah. So you do that. So you get into storytelling, and you now you're teaching storytelling out here, and you're also working on another show, or are you kind of just like? What, what's your like entertainment journey right now? Uh, slow moving. Okay. Yeah, I've had, I went on a journey for the last year and such, uh, and I've been writing about that. So I've actually been doing something that I've been writing about. Hell yeah. So that's been what I've been focusing on. Okay. So we will get to see you performing hopefully within the next year. If not much sooner. Oh, yeah. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, because it's, yeah, I wanted a very big story worthy journey that we need to hear about i wouldn't mind you hearing about (laughs) okay and why uh what got you like drawn into majoring into theater like why even why even start that you always wanted to be an entertainer sure is that true though well yes the main reason i got in the theater department at the university of florida was because (laughs) i had a girlfriend who found me funny and talked me into going into a theater program that I was too scared to do. And then I did. And then I met the people that I really liked. And I finally found my people. Oh, yeah. And that becomes like I felt safe and wonderful and appreciated. And I felt like I figured out what I like to do. Wow. So I got a theater degree. I was gonna add worthless oh, before it, but of course not, you are. But I'm not going to. That was just uh, that was just self-deprecating, just for the sake of it. Yeah. Uh, it just gave me a lot of training, but it also I had really had no other marketable skill set in which to focus on. <laughs> so then, when I got into improv with Second City, and I found that as my job, and once I was hired there, then that became my job for the next two decades. 
Which is amazing. The joke right. my father and I always had is that uh, he said to me, once he saw Second City for the first time and saw me there, he said, uh, you have picked the best way to spend your 20s. <laughs> and I agreed with him so much that I extended it well into my 40s. <laughs> I, I was just going to say, like, it's a little bit of a neg to be like, in your 20s, hint, wink. Well, when he said it, I was in my, like, 31. <laughs> so... <laughs> So it's been a while. What a read. Wow. Your dad, uh, he, he read you. Okay. Yeah. Well, folks, we hope you enjoyed your apps. We're going to move on to the entrees after a quick break. We are back. And now it is time for the entrees. Okay, Kevin, this is the portion where I always call it a speed round of questions. It isn't. This is where you tell stories. But um, this is just like we ask kind of the same questions every time in this section. People love the juice. So, okay, first question we always start with is what was your first job ever where the government was taking taxes out? Some people say babysitting paper out, whatever. He's got an answer. Tell me. Public supermarket. On my 16th birthday, I went and applied for a job at Publix in the Sawgrass Marriott complex. Wow. Okay, so that's in Florida. So Publix, for people who don't know, if you're not from that area, everybody makes fun of it because it's spelled P-U-B-L-I-X. And like, Publix, you, yeah, yeah, you can yeah. do a lot of, you can do a lot. Well, you can do a few jokes with that. Okay, so at the supermarket, why why the supermarket? Why not anywhere else? And what did you do there? Close to my house. Oh, that'll do it. And I was told that if I wanted a car, I had to pay for half of it. <laughs> so the only way I could do that was to get a job immediately. Okay. And I did because it was the most convenient and it was the first time I applied anywhere and I got accepted and because I am inherently lazy, <laughs> I just went with the first thing that offered me a job. Okay. And what were you like? A, a shelf? Bagger. Or, I, bagger? Put, I, put, I put things Groceries in bags. And bag. Did they train you on that or did you just start throwing shit in bags? Nope. You train. You do? I figured. To the point where I am now 51 years old and I still am very good at packing a really? uh, grocery bag. Yeah. Wait, what's the what's like something they tell it's you? Heavy, I mean, it's like basic stuff. It's heavy at the bottom, loose on top. Oh, okay. Yeah, so it's that. But it's like being able to look at the puzzle pieces oh, in sure. front of you yeah. and be able to put them in there. It's like the scene in Apollo 13 where they say, we need you to make this. Fit into, into this, this. Using nothing but these. Uh-huh. Yeah, that's so being able to look at all that and to put it in a bag. It's very different skill sets. I was just about to oh, say. Oh, highly different. Oh, I'm fully aware. <laughs> highly different skill sets. <laughs> But I'm saying you're you're a NASA astronaut is what you're saying. Well, Mazel Tov. You yeah. said it, and I'm not disagreeing. <laughs> okay, Mr. Astronaut. So you do you're so you're a bagger. Did you ever want to graduate to cash I did. register? I you did. did? No, 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 no. I'm so sorry. Uh, I jumped the gun. Yeah, you did. We are still living in a uh, chauvinistic society at that point <laughs> where only women could be cashiers. Shut men, up. I'm not going to shut up. No really? Men, no men could be cashiers. Wait, why? I don't know. As I, I did not even think about that until we're talking about it right now. Yeah, that's the way it was. How weird. Huh. Okay, so you were you like angling to try and do that? And they were like, sorry, no, you're no, not no, a woman. No, 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 no. Oh. Uh, it was never even, it was one of those things where it's just not an option because that's just not the way it's done. Ah. Uh, uh, but the thing you work up towards as a bag, a male bagger is a magger. Yeah, part-time stock. Oh, and that's better? Well, you don't have to deal with people. It's way well, better. Sure. Is it better? Well, that's very arguable, but it's like the <laughs> you have to get there at 4 a.m. for the shipments. Oh, uh, you, you're in high school getting there at 4 a.m.? Weekends. Ooh, Kevin. I'm amazing. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so how many years are you there? Two. 
Okay. So you, so you graduate to stock person and then is that where you tapped out or were you like, now it's time to go to college? Uh, now it's time to go work for the Ponte Vedra Enon Club Golf Club, where Ooh. I am a golf cart attendant because oh, I'll be making more way money. Way more money. Yeah. And I have a friend who's gotten me a job there. Okay. And that was my second job and actually more interesting than the first. Wait, why? Because more things happened. <laughs> well, I mean, arguably, I guess it's a golf club where people are drinking. I would say this is my worst job. Wait, why? Uh, this is the uh, for the question later. I'm yeah, assuming yeah. you're going to ask which was the worst. I'm going to say it was a, this one. I gave this some thought was because there were moments that were terrible. You know how in a relationship that when you look back on it, if the good outweighed the bad, mm-hmm. then you see it as a good relationship. Sure. If the bad outweighs the good, you see it as a bad thing. Yeah, that's right. Uh, there's enough. It's still a good experience, but there was enough bad in there that could teeter on the bad experience. Okay. Here's one. As a golf cart attendant, one of your jobs is to get into a metal golf cart with a metal cage around it and go pick up the range balls. So there's hundreds of them. So basically, it's just you hook up this contraption to this metal golf cart with a cage around it, hook up this contraption, and then you drive around the range like you're vacuuming a carpet. Jesus. It's an easy, mindless job. It's fine. But could you also get hit by balls? Well... I think you see where we're going. Oh, shit. So what happens every time someone goes to pick the range, the golfers now use this as a target. Oh, fuck off. Are you... Jo- That's not what I thought you were going to say. Well, I mean, it's just... It's inherent. Like, there's now a moving target in front of them oh, as they are shooting a projectile forward. That could hurt you. Well, you see where we're going. Oh, my God, Kevin. So one day, as I am driving... So you go up and down. The, the striations you make are... Uh, back away, and then you're driving towards the golfers at one point, and you turn around and go back and come back. And is there like a rake or something at the back, or you're physically having to get out and pick them up yourself? There's uh, the, there's a contraption hooked up to the front of the oh, metal golf cart oh, that it, is it. picking them up. Got it, okay. Yeah, as you just drive over them. Okay, okay. So it's like a vacuum cleaner. That's what you're saying. Okay, sorry, yeah. Yeah, so, um, and they end up in little baskets. Got it. So on on this particular day, as I'm driving towards the golfers, one guy gives me like a Babe Ruth type point and he hits it. He hits either the best drive in the world or the worst drive in the world because what happens is he stiffs it. So as opposed to it shooting off the club into an arc and going up, it shoots off straight like a bullet. Oh my God. It shoots straight forward and it breaks in (gasps) through the metal of the cage and embeds itself an inch from my ear. You could have died then you know exactly where this is going. Oh my God. So as that's embedded in there, then I get out of it and I start waving my hands, say, we're done, we're done. I just walk back in into the clubhouse. How did you not immediately find that fucking dude and lose it on him? Because you were 19, 18, 18 19, yeah, and yeah, you didn't I, have it. I don't know I that I would have lost it. I was in shock and like, what, what could that's I do? That's fucking terrifying, Kevin. It was terrifying. You know what it was? It was like an opening scene <laughs> In the, in the show Six Feet Under. Ooh, 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 ooh. Yeah, yeah. Like that, huh, this guy's dying in a few minutes. Like, it's gonna yeah. be like one of those weird deaths. Yeah. So so you wave your hands, mm-hmm. you go into the clubhouse, and were you like, that's a wrap on my day? I think so. That's where the memory ends. Like, the thing that I remember vividly Jeez. is the sound, just the violence of it breaking through the metal, and then seeing that metal bent in front of me, and then feeling it embedded behind me. Like, that, to me, is the most vivid memory and the guy pointing those what are the two f- things that i just really stood out from that because they were the most emotionally charging oh my god of course yeah 
So do you, so you don't have a memory of, of your boss coming and chatting with you or anybody? It's been too long. Yeah. It's been okay. too long. All I remember is that. Damn. Yeah. So this is job number two. You're two. still, are you in high school at this point or you're in college? You're still in high school. Jesus. I'm still in high school, but I've now graduated. This is the summer. The summer before school. And I was a little late in going to college <laughs> that I went to a community college for the first semester. Okay. So I was at Florida Community College at Jacksonville, or as we called it, the 13th grade. <laughs> Because it was like basically another basically senior year. Thing. Yeah. Okay. So yeah, I was doing those two things. So I was kind of just, I was being a cart jockey and taking two classes at the JUCO. I, and I can't believe that, especially because you were at JUCO, like learning, I can't believe you didn't quit the golf job that day. Like, I mean, I guess you might not have had the financial luxury to do so, but that would have been enough of an incident where I would have, I mean, I say that and I don't know that I would have done anything differently, but. Yeah, I, I don't know. How many customer jobs, customer jobs, customer service jobs would you say you had to Eight. You already know. Okay, can like, I, I, I got prepared. Kevin's prepared. He's a storyteller. Yeah. Okay, give me give me give me the eight. All right. Publix. Ponte Vedra Inn and Club Where golf cart attendant. Mm-hmm. The next one was Outback Steakhouse for mm-hmm. one week where I was a busser. And well, the one thing that I remember from that is a manager insisting upon a term that he came up with, which was called butt to butt time, which was when the butts of the people in the seats get up, we have to go up there and clean the table up to get the next butts in the seat. So we called it butt to butt time. Bless anybody who tries to make an awful job less awful. <laughs> Bless him. Okay. Bless him. Uh, here is one that I did not get, but one I would like to say is that I tried to get a job at Circuit City. Wait, why didn't you get that? So I walked into the interview <laughs> and I was told by the two friends of mine that recommended me for this job. You even came with a friend recommendation oh and didn't gosh. get it? And I also came with, this was in Chicago, and I had just graduated from University of Florida, and now I am 1,000 miles away in Chicago trying to get this job. And as I'm sitting in the break room waiting for the manager to come in to interview me, he walks in, and then as you do, I stuck out my hand for him to shake it. He ignores the gesture, and he looks at me and goes, I thought I recognized your name. And it's obvious I have no idea who he is because he says, you don't remember me, do you? Oh, fuck. And I said, no, sir, I don't. And he goes, well, I remember you. And I think it's safe to say you're not getting a job today. Oh, he, he made something up in his head. And then he sat me down at the table and he told me exactly how he knew me. Oh, God. <laughs> Four years earlier. No. 1,000 miles away. No. No, no. At the University of Florida. No. One afternoon, I'm hanging out with my uh, buddy David at his dorm room in Hume Hall. And as we're in there, this guy knocks on the door, this little squirrely kid from down the hall who has a joint. And he says, hey, I need to smoke this joint. Can I smoke this joint in your room? I can't smoke it in my room because my roommate's being a dick. And David, never refusing any sort of pot, says, oh, yeah, you could smoke it in here. And because I did not smoke pot at the time, and I was pretty uppity about it, I politely refused the pot offer but then i went and sat next to the open window which was the perfect vantage point from which to silently judge they start to smoke and the room fills up with smoke and within like a minute there's a pounding on the door and then the ra the the key jiggles and the ra bursts in and he's furious and he says wait here i've got to go get the necessary paperwork he goes back to his room we have a minute to get our story in order little squirrely kid already had three strikes already had two strikes against him said oh my god i can't get any more strikes i'll be kicked out of school please i can't do this then me who was not smoking pot that day was not going to take any responsibility so david fell on the sword for all three of us and he said i was smoking pot and they were not and i have a problem so 
the RA has to accept our obviously bullshit story that we are released, we are let go, and then I go back and I suffer no other repercussions. David, however, has to write numerous essays about the dangers of drug use. It messes with his academic career. He's got to go in front of disciplinary boards. And I know this because he told me as he was going through it. However, the RA had to go through a tremendous amount as well. He had to go through all those disciplinary hearings. He had to read all those essays. And the reason I know this is because he told me 1,000 miles away, four years later, four years later in the Circuit City break room. And that was the RA. Oh my God. And I said to him, what a fun misunderstanding. <laughs> I was not smoking pot that day. Truly. And then it got real for me because I needed this job desperately because I was running out of money and I gave him this plea where I said, please, sir, I really need this job. And something about my plea gave him empathy because he said to me, okay, fine. Could you pass a drug test now? Fuck off, I will die, I will die, Kevin! You're such a good storyteller. And because my worldview had changed so drastically <laughs> in those four years, I looked at him and I said, no, sir, no, I cannot. <laughs> And he said, well, I guess we're done. And then he walked out of the room laughing. Oh my God. So at this point, I'm despondent and I have no idea what to do next. So I walk out to my car and I just start to aimlessly drive around Chicago. And because I'm cut off by a Honda Civic on Lakeshore Drive, I end up in a part of town that I have never been before. And I go in front of a restaurant called Leona's that has a now hiring sign in the marquee. I go inside, lie about my previous waiting tables experience, <laughs> and I'm given a job that day. My favorite part of the story and the whole reason I know it so well is that on my first shift, I am introduced to the waiter in the section next to me who I got along with immediately and he and I have been best friends for the last 26 years. What's his name? Lance Barber. Hi, Lance. So because of a crime I committed four years earlier, sure. I now was able to meet my best friend of 26 years. You also didn't get stuck working at Circuit City. No which, kidding. From everything guys, I've heard. Well, those guys that recommended me were hand over fist making money at that point. Oh, wait, were they? Because they got commission or something? They were like in it the It was sale? all commission. And it was oh. a time when that was a boom. Yeah. It was a booming industry that just died. It sure did. Yeah. I mean, it died a quick death. But wow. at that time, it was out of the blue. The, so they're making, they're making crazy, crazy fucking money. money. Okay, so you get hired at Leona's. So now that's my first waiting tables job, and I okay. do that for two years. Wait, wait, but you lied about your experience. How well, much did you fuck up? Well, I lied about my experience in that, uh, have you ever waited tables before? Uh, sure. No, 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 but I mean, like, waiting tables is not easy, and it is something you have to learn how to do. Well, I also found out that Leona's, here's the reason, too, that I think I was let in, it was that Leona's is a family-owned restaurant in Chicago, and they have, like, I'm going to make this number up, nine locations okay and they'll sometimes do mass hirings and sometimes in that mass hiring the skill levels are sometimes negotiable oh, okay because okay. they're bringing in a bunch of people at once it's a big turn and burn kind of place kind of place okay so you meet your best friend yes you start working leonis you why only two years there did because did second city come in the mix no okay well, then i got a better job at the next restaurant which was tgi fridays okay now we have a really good story attached to this particular job that we're not going to tell yet. Okay. Um, we got to get, let's get through this list. Okay. And then we're going to go back to the really good story that I know about that okay. I need you to tell in great detail. Okay. So what, what is after? Can I tease what, it? Yes, you sure can. So the thing that I told Kate that she does not know the end of this too. <laughs> I don't. But became intrigued by just this setup, <laughs> which was with this TGI Fridays, which was in, uh, oh my God, I forgot the name of, oh, whatever. It was in Chicago. Okay. But it, that franchise was closing. The, the, the that particular location or particular, all of it was, Fridays in, and, it was in Merchandise Mart. Okay. And that particular Fridays. Fridays was closing. Okay. Forever. Okay. 
at 4 p.m. on a Thursday. It was closed forever. But I ended up being the last waiter in the last section in the last 15 minutes of this restaurant being opened. And this guy crossed me. Okay, pause. Stop. Okay, good. Done. That's it. That's all That's we it. need. Thank you, Kevin. Okay, Kevin got crossed. That was, how long did you work at that Friday's? How long was it actually open? Mm, I was probably there a year and a half. Okay, are you simultaneously working at Leona's or did this replace Leona's? It was a slow transition until eventually it was uh, full at Friday's. Were you making more money at Friday's? Yes. Okay, well, just because it's Friday's, it's a better location? Uh, it was also a better deal restaurant-wise. It was the only restaurant I ever worked at that was in the Merchandise Mart, which is the uh, it's a large office building okay. there that like the only people you're getting work in the building. Oh, so it's business people. So it's business people and also between 11.30 and 1, I've never seen a restaurant just hit oh. immediately that it dies off. So you could be out of there really early and the restaurant closed at 8. Oh, hell yeah. So yeah, so it was one of those where I sucked up the fact that the way I always described it was I work at TGI Fridays where dignity is not on the menu. Because I was still there in the days where it was red striped shirts. Oh, no pins and the singing and all the pins everything. And the singing and this, the is, this is what they say the franchise that Waiting, the movie Waiting was yes. written after, was yes. actually a Friday's. That and Office Space. Oh, shut up. That's of course, because they got the striped shirts uh-huh. and they, okay. So Dignity's not on the menu. Correct. What are you doing? You're not bartending. You're just straight serving. I did sometimes bartending, but okay. for the most part, I'm doing service where I'm wearing a hat that denotes my personality. And which was what? I wore a newsboy cap because they wouldn't let me wear a baseball cap. So I just went and bought some sort of newsboy cap. Why was that better? I don't know. There was just a touch of fascism. Uh, (laughs) Just the the slight aroma of it. (laughs) Just a whiff. Um, But then you also had to have the suspenders with at least 10 pieces of flair. Is that real? Really? At least 10 pieces of flair? And you know how many I wore? Nine to be ten. an asshole. You ten. wore ten, because Kevin. You're not a rule follower. I'm so surprised. Well, I'm not a going beyond up above and beyond. How about that? <laughs> okay, so Fridays is a year and a half. You're a now. How are you able to occasionally bartend with no bartending experience at a busy location? Uh, well, uh, between two thirty and four thirty, it's pretty dead. Okay, so you would teach yourself. I would teach myself. I also uh, this might come in later, but one of the biggest things I walked out of there was the best advice I would ever give anyone who ever works in a restaurant, which is uh, make friends with the cooks. Oh, yes. Oh, yes, Lord. Uh Oh, my gosh, because Uh there are times uh, I was able to, they let me come back there and cook my own food when it was slow. Oh, wow. And it was so amazing to have just a fully prepped kitchen in front of you. Yeah. So it was fun just, yeah. So it's that make friends with the cooks because they'll also help you in times when you need it. Oh, and you'll be handed your ass multiple times and they will save you. Yes. They also can ruin your life, which has been, I've experienced that. Okay. So you work at Fridays for a year and a half. Where does Second City come in the mix with this? Are you at this point? Okay. So you're not performing yet. Are you auditioning? I'm performing constantly. What are you, where? What are you doing? uh, What was then Improv Olympic, but is now IO. Okay, so you're already in the improv scene. Oh, I'm. That's all I'm doing. I'm working these restaurants to stay afloat, and every other moment of my day is is devoted to that. Okay, so are you also signed with an agency, auditioning, pursuing acting, or are you just? uh, Yes, asterisk. Uh, I'm. I yeah. I have a commercial agent at that point, and I am. But I'm focusing. You know what? I had such a myopic view where I 
in retrospect, I wish I had a broader horizons, but at the mm-hmm. same time, I'm happy with the way everything is shaken out. Sure. But I was laser pointed on Second City. It was the only reason I was in that city. Okay. That was the only thing I wanted to do. I didn't give a shit about all the other things that come along with Acting. being an actor. It was yeah. simply, I I have a proficiency for this, and I love this, and I love what the institution of Second City is at that point in my life. Sure. To me, it represented just... Yeah, it was a PhD program. Yeah, that's right. That's what they call it. Yeah. So you found out about it in Florida when you were in undergrad and knew, or did you always know Second City was the mothership? In the first semester of University of Florida, I went to the Wrights Union Hall Mm -hmm. to see the Second City Touring Company. And I remember vividly another moment that sticks out to me just because of the emotion attached to it. We were leaning over to my girlfriend at the time saying, this is what I want to do. Oh, Kevin. I know. It's It's adorable. It's so earnest. It's so earnest. It was legit. Wow. So I remember that so vividly because then a scant decade later, I was doing it. Finally hired by them. Okay. So in the midst of this though, you're so you're working at Fridays, you're bouncing all around at IO. You have yet to go to Second City. Well, I'm taking classes there. So I, you are taking classes. I'm doing ev- I am oh, okay. so immersed in the improv world. Okay. These are just these jobs are just keeping me afloat. That's it. But yeah, like So what's after so Fridays then becomes Rock Bottom Brewery. Oh God, that's a chain. There's one out here now. It's on the corner of State and Grand in Chicago. And the reason I have that job or got that job was I needed another job besides Fridays. So I walked into the sub into the L train, went to the subway, and I just decided I'm just gonna get off at a random stop and see if I can find a job. <laughs> oh, and when I got off the train, it's right next to the exit. And so you're I like, this is easy. Convenience seems to be your attraction for customer service. That's the that's it, convenience. Because then I walked in and a guy that I knew from Improv Olympic was, was there. in there and he said, Hey, and then I said, I'm coming to get a job. So then he put in a word for me. So it was just an easy process just through pure coincidence. Now, isn't that great that he didn't have a weed smoking and a dorm room experience with you to interrupt the flow of that friend recommendation and actually being able to get that job? That's a twist of fate. Good job, uh, you. Oh, my gosh. So patience. Yeah, just of patience. course. Yes. Just patience. Playing the long game and not being drug tested and help. So now if I was to tell you the job I like the most, yeah. it would be Rock Bottom Brewery. Wait, Why? Because, well, a number of reasons. One, I had a friend there. Uh, one of my best friends is a guy named Matt Bronger, who's a stand-up comedian. I know this name. I've, I think I've seen him. Is he still a stand-up? Yes. Yeah, I've seen him. Yeah, he's Very quite funny. funny. He's quite yeah. funny. So at that time, as young men in our 20s, who were just so feverishly enjoying comedy so much, that he and I got really good at what we called the hit and run. And the best thing about being a waiter is that you can be in a conversation with another waiter and then you can just walk away without even mid-sentence and they're not going to get upset with you because they know that you're timing food and you only have a few seconds every now and again. Yeah. So our goal with the hit and run is you go up and you do some bit with someone and when you get your laugh, you're out of there. That's clever. Okay. So it became like a, just a training for how fast can you get? How much can you like really be legitimately funny react to something they say or get into a conversation fast enough where you can get a laugh and get out of there wow yeah and it became just a fun training ground for that that's real though you know uh there's a another second city we've had on ithamar enriquez yes. what up ithamar there actually he, he knows kevin um and he actually said a lot of his improv training came from just screwing around at a I, lot of these jobs i listened and, to that episode and i was thinking i was relating to that when he was saying it because yeah, that's what made me think of it that i just didn't gosh i feel really like i wasted a lot of time not doing that because i was so bitter at all of the customer service jobs that i was like i'm not gonna make this fun what a great skill to now have. We also, I mean, Matt and I also played games a lot there that were 
Like just, improv games or? Well, we made games up. Okay. My favorite one was called Rockwell's Attic. Okay. And Rockwell's Attic was this. The goal was you had to walk up. So Matt would walk up to me or I would walk up to him and we would go back and forth. And when it was your turn, you had to walk up to the other and as quickly, succinctly, and as vividly as possible, you had to describe a Norman Rockwell painting that doesn't exist. Oh my, nerd shit. But it was awesome well because done. then it became how, it was Norman Rockwell paintings that were hidden in his attic that no one's ever seen. Oh, so it became the goal of, it was like an aristocrats type thing. Of yep. Like what can you do, what story can you tell with a Norman Rockwell veneer that would just made, it, we just made each other laugh. So every time we ran into each other, we would purposely walk up to each other and as quickly as possible describe that Norman Rockwell painting. And it just made us laugh and we would look forward and made the night just fly, fly. by yeah. because you're doing your job and you're also thinking like, what's a, ne- what's a good one yeah. to do next? Yeah. Can you real quick, before you go on to the story, I don't want to interrupt. Can you explain um, why you said Aristocats? Because I don't think anyone outside, well, some people outside of like the theater comedy world know that. There's a of. joke. The only reason I know it is because of the documentary that was on it called oh, The I Aristocrats. That. Yeah, that's right. That it's basically one of those standard stand-up comedian jokes where it's just a simple premise the beginning and end are set, but the middle you make up. You make up, and how you make up the middle kind of denotes your personality and how, yeah, your sensibilities. Insane and you such. are. <laughs> yeah. So some people go extremely gross with it. Some people go like clever, but it's it's one of those things that just it's kind of a litmus test. Yeah. But that's what it was. Like it's that where we would just fill in the blanks for these Norman Rockwell paintings that don't exist. And did you call why Rockwell? Was it because it was called the Rock Something Brewery or the Rock? rock, uh, rock Bottom I've never brewery, made that so. connection until you said that right now. I think it was just y'all were nerds and liked Norman rock, Rockwell. I mean, I think it was just a com- it was just a conversation that it was probably a bit that uh, started that just grew. Okay. Okay. Yeah. Okay. And we did that like. It's one of those things where I look back on it so fondly that we may have done it like maybe three nights. Sure, sure. But we also wrote a show about it that we put up at oh, Second City called Rockwell's Attic. That's uh, awesome. Yeah, so like that was one of our big uh, bonding things. But that's why I remember that so vividly is because that game led to something else. Sure. But it was just us goofing around as a way to pass time quickly and cleverly. Okay, so you that's your favorite job though. And is it just because you happen to meet Matt and like... Well, that's one of the reasons. But it's also that... I like the people there. Okay. Uh, I also could get away with things. <laughs> the truth comes out. Yeah, why not? Uh, <laughs> the biggest thing, so like there were a bunch of games, like whatever. I was a man in my 20s who just, I don't know what their hiring practices were. <laughs> but the, the, the females they hired there, it was like beautiful women and whatever dudes. <laughs> So, like, it became, oh, I loved making Women other laugh. servers. Yeah, yeah. Oh, why not? Yeah, that, that's love a, it. Yeah, that's okay. It's like, for instance, I remember one afternoon, uh, I was in this section with another woman who I thought was just so pretty, and she found me so funny. So, I made up a game called the Spoon Game, which was, uh, anytime I got a new table, I had a, a spoon in my hand. And I would go to the table and greet them, and I would put that spoon at the end of the table, but I wouldn't even acknowledge that I did, and then I'd leave it there. And then whenever I'd come back, I'd take it, then I'd probably move it to another part of their table, but just talking about it. But it was simply for her to watch it and to watch me doing it and to get away with the spoon game. Then I would take it, then I'd move it to another table, but no one ever called me out on it. Ever. No, 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 which is what made it hilarious. hilarious. Yeah. 
because she knew the game, I knew the game, but no one else did. Oh, I love that kind of stuff. Yeah. That does that does exist. I do. I will say the camaraderie amongst restaurant employees to get through the time. That's there the is best that. part. Yeah, yeah, that is the best part. Because they're usually, at least the restaurants I worked at at the time period that I did. Yeah, it was all people around my age. Sure, young energy. They were still like hopeful, hope in their eyes. Yeah, there was a lot. <laughs> <laughs> Nobody was like bitter and beaten down yet. Okay. Right. So you, so Rockwell, no, I keep calling it Rockwell, Rock Bottom Brewery. Yes. So you work there now in the midst of this, you get called up to touring company for a second city because yes. touring, Torco means you, you really can't have another job, although financially you need a, another job, but you're all over the country in theory, right? Yes. But you're also, here's the other thing. I also left out another job that I was also doing simultaneously as Rock Bottom. What was that? I worked at the Second City box office. Oh. I know. So uh, the reason I did that was because a friend of mine who worked there said to me, because he knew I was vying for this, and that was what I wanted. But um, I don't know if you know this, and it might have just been at the time period, but in the late 90s, white guys were a dime a dozen. What? Yeah. Only at that time period. Only in that time period. We've since graduated. We've since, yeah. So, of course, there's a... Myriad men. Wow. So, the thing he said to me that kind of changed it, because it was like, just to better my odds, he said, daytime funny here is a very valuable funny. Oh, elaborate, please. Meaning that if you're in the box office where all the producers work all the time, and you're funny, they now know you as funny. However, the downside is they also know you as a box office Box office employee. person. This is the problem. That becomes your identity. However, you can break the ceiling. How? By making sure that you're not just using that as the only avenue in. You are now known because of it. Now it's your job to do other things to make them want you. Okay. It can't just be, oh, he's so funny in the box office. Let's give him a highly coveted job. <laughs> it's, I know him from the box office, find him very funny, and he's also doing this show, and I heard this is really good about him. Like, So now he's a valuable asset. The thing that sucks about most, well, not sucks. Let's go with sucks. <laughs> is it to get someone or an institution or someone to like you other people have to like you for them to be drawn to you. Uh, it's the it's the fucking catch with getting representation. Yes. Yeah. You have to be you have to have heat on you before they can help you get heat on you. So it's like how? So all you like being in the box office, all you do is like try to find heat other ways, but it just made sure that you were you now had a reputation. So how'd you do it? When myself and some contemporaries all had moved to Chicago, there was this legendary improv group called Jazz Freddy. And Jazz Freddy, you would see the pictures of it, and in Chicago improv, you would recognize everybody in it. Like, oh my God, they were in that? And anyone who talked about Jazz Freddy would talk about it with just such high esteem. However, we never saw Jazz Freddy, so we based, it was based solely on reputation. So myself and some other people got together and we decided we're gonna start something of heavy hitters, of people that have reputations, of a big heavy hitter group, and we're not going to do shows. But we're going to talk about the roster of this group. <laughs> and the names you may recognize. I'll die. It was uh, me, Matt Craig. I love Matt. Lance Barber, TJ Jackadowski, Jack McBrayer. 
Oh, sure. Just uh, anybody that doesn't know, Jack McBrayer played the page on fucking 30 Rock. Uh, Kenneth the Page. Yeah. Uh, and if you're an improv nerd, you know, uh, you know TJ Jack- names. You know TJ Jackadowski's name especially. Uh, but it's just, to us, it was the funniest thing. <laughs> and there were others on it as well. Uh, uh, Raul De La Cruz, Matt Colson, Kevin Fleming, just to make sure if they ever hear this. Uh, yeah. <laughs> but we did that where it was just... Anytime anyone heard that roster, they were like, what the That's fall? great. Yeah, well done. So then that reputation built. Y'all never performed a singular show together. We started doing a bar show that we eventually got kicked out of. Why? But that was the only, and we did one show next to a strip club. Wait, 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 wait. So yeah, so it was basically just, we got random things here and there, but that was one of the ways we got heat on us was we were part of the GOC, the Guise of Comedy, but it was spelled G-U-I-S-E, which was under the guise of comedy, meaning that we weren't real. Oh, God, leave it to comedy nerds to just nerds. nerd on nerd what on a, nerd. What, what a play. I mean... <laughs> Because Jazz Freddy actually was a group of for heavy realsies. hitters. It they actually performed. Oh, yeah. But y'all, but we, why wouldn't y'all want to actually perform? I mean, you said you did the bar show. we did other stuff as well, but it was also mostly just our excuse to goof around together. And just be idiots. Okay. Be idiots. It was all friends who were just having a being great- Being friends. Being okay. friends. But that was our thing that we thought was so funny that let's just see if we can build this solely on reputation. God damn. Okay, so wait, where so where in the timeline of this, like you you so you're still doing box office. This is rock bottom, box office, doing uh improv shows at IO, doing stuff at Second City and doing this. Like it's uh, that's it's all, all I'm doing. It's all the same time. Okay. It's all I'm doing. I have so much energy at that point in my life. <laughs> I miss those years. Yeah. Okay, so wait, going back though, so why did you get kicked out of a bar show as part of guys? I don't remember the exact reason. Oh. I would say probably just complete lack of <laughs> any sort of professionalism maybe oh wait what wait, okay like showing up five minutes before we're supposed to start oh kevin not bring anyone to the show not, like not maybe, a singular human no just hoping like <laughs> where was the bar that you performed bar sh- bar prop is the worst i'm sorry i never like i we made it fun but like bar prop is hard oh, it's hard. It's horrible. It was a back room. Oh, that was well, separated. That's better. However, it's separated. Separated. So yeah, not um, a lot of people wandering into your bar show. No, not at all. So you're doing all those things simultaneously. Yes. Then where does Torco come in? Where you so box? So you're getting heat on you because you're doing these things. Yes. So the producers are are they starting to pull you aside and be like, hey, Kevin, like you know we may have something for you. No. They dangle me along for a oh, long they time. they do that. Ugh. That was a very weird so thing that vulnerable. they did yeah. at one point, which was they did something for the first time they never did again, which was after, because the auditions will sometimes be like 350, 400, pe- 400 people. They would just, they'll, they'll cut it off at that point. They should have cut it off before then. What a waste. 400 people? I think some, I think uh, I may be making that number up. Even that, if it were 200, that's too many. I think it was 2,200. That's too many. <laughs> So uh, that's too many. So what they did this one year was they didn't have any spots to fill, but they saw 20 people. That's shitty. They loved. That's shitty. So what they did is they published a short list and sent it to all the departments at Second City saying, these people are not hired, but we are planning to. So please welcome them in and treat them as if they work here, but they don't work here. Let us stress that. Like, to what end? 
Oh, it was terrible. So they never did it again. It yeah, that's a, worse. You might as well just don't tell people. So of the 20 people on that list, I was put on a company. I think I was the 18th. Oh, shit. <laughs> Jason Sudeikis and I were put on at the same time, Aww. and he had a full Who? Torco career before I, and I replaced him. Oh, that's lovely. Yeah. I mean, of all the people you're going to replace, might as well be Ted Lasso. Okay, folks. So where we're at right now, I have more stories I need from Kevin. And so we were at our time limit. So I've got to kick Kevin off. You're never going to hear any more stories from him. Just kidding. We're going to wrap up part one. Thank you folks so much for listening. If you want to help us out here at Service From Hell, please write. Well, let me get to the actual. Let me read it. Well, folks, we're going to drop your checks now. Thank you so much for listening. If you want to help us out here at Service from Hell, we'd love to have you subscribe, rate, and or review the show wherever you listen. Thank you so much to SiriusXM. She's so funny for having us on right now. Thank you for listening here. That's where you're at. It uh, it, it will help people. It will help us. Jesus, Kate, I'm out of my... It will help us reach more people that need to be schooled on the art of being kind. It won't be catharsis for those of us still working in the industry. If you want to get in touch with us here directly at Service from Hell, send us your receipts to servicefromhellpodcast at gmail.com. We'd love to hear from you. Remember, if you can't afford to tip, you can't afford to go out. So don't be garbage and be good to people. It's easier that way. Thanks for being on, Kevin. Uh, this is uh, Kevin McGeehan is available on all the things. We'll have his info in the show notes. And he will be back next week to promo all the ways that you can see him and hear him. Thank you folks so much for listening. Good night. Uh, Kevin McGeehan is going to tell us a bonus story. Tell it, Kevin. Tell it. <laughs> Earlier I talked about the games that we played at Rock Bottom Brewery as a way to make the evenings or the shifts go faster. One was the Rockwell's Attic where we had to describe a different Rockwell painting to each other. Other one was a spoon game uh, to make. That was You were using that to flirt, though. I was using that to flirt, but still it passed the time. It did, and it counts as a game. And then we had a game, there were a few of us that did this thing, and this is late 90s, early 2000s, where information was not at the tip of our fingers or in our pockets. So anytime you heard anything, it would have to be from some sort of news source or hearsay. So we played a game that whenever the, the lobby got really crowded at the restaurant, that we would walk through two waiters at a time and we would talk loudly enough about something we made up. And the goal was to see if we could ever hear a table talking about the thing that we had set up. That's a great game. So for instance, my favorite one that I'll never forget was the night we decided like a celebrity died. What celebrity is believable enough and would be devastating enough that we would like it's believable. Yeah, like for sure they probably died. Yeah. And they and since Google doesn't exist or you can't there's no you can't phone, look. you can't it, prove it. All you do is you've heard the news from someone. That's so cool. So I remember vividly, I think it was Valentine's, and we would walk through Man, I can't believe Kevin Klein died. Oh my gosh, and he was a second city guy, wasn't he? No. Oh he was okay. He was not. But just but Kevin Klein is alive and well. Yeah, uh, currently today. Currently today, <laughs> as we speak, which is why I feel okay saying this now. <laughs> but at that time, it was that game of can, like, did, 
did, did Kevin Kline, did, did I Kevin, just hear Kevin, that? Kevin Klein die? But like, <laughs> try, like going all in, like, oh my God, he was so good in Big Chill. Like just a oh, little you're, bit. Oh, you're going after Just it. going after it. Just having like Doppler effect of like it's, <laughs> it's up and then the, oh, he's so good and I love you to death. Like it's, so the reason I bring this one up is that it was the first night it was successful because one of the other waiters named Henry <clears throat> overheard in his section someone talking about Kevin Klein dying. It was the best. Wait, so did you ever try it again after that night? Because you're like, okay, this fucking worked. So I think that was the last time we did it because it <laughs> worked. Because it worked? That's the way it goes. Because Yeah, because then it was... It's anticlimactic. You're like, it's anticlimactic okay, we it, at this point forward. Uh, yeah. I love it. But that's what made that job great. so great. Yeah. Was that people would play. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And you made it fun when you knew it wasn't permanent. And there was a sort of a detachment that you that means you get to have fun, which yes. actually makes you make more money in theory as a server. Because if you're having a good time, like if I go into a restaurant and they're having a good time, I'm more likely to stay. If everybody's pissed and you can tell it's a just a weird place to work, no thanks. Yeah. And it's it always helps. That my mm-hmm. job my goal every time was to make and who knows if this is a deeper psychological thing of my <laughs> desire to be liked by everyone, but I also made it a goal to be having fun having fun at least like because once again I was also training in improv yeah so my my job what I was learning how to do was to actively listen and to respond to the moment so waiting tables was the best job for that because it's constantly constantly changing that's right you have to adapt as fast as you possibly can that's great thanks for that bonus story Kevin Uh, that's good that's fine thank you thank you 